0: Hello, and welcome to the IMS Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Bloomberg. Today, we're speaking with American Psychiatric Association member, Dr. Neil Kay, about developing legal strategy, common clinical and forensic mental health conditions, and the rise in social media related cases. Dr. Kay is a clinical and forensic psychiatrist with more than 35 years of experience treating patients. He is an IMS elite expert Neuropsychiatrist and pharmacologist, board-certified in general adult psychiatry, geriatric psychiatry, and forensic psychiatry. So I, I take it that your cases and your trials take you all across the United States, and we've seen, you know, in, in some venues, state or federal, depending on the rules or the judge, that jurors are allowed to ask questions. Have you been in those trials where you've done the direct, you've done the cross and the redirect, and now jurors have submitted questions to the judge to potentially be asked. What do you think of that process? So
1: I love that process. I I think it's fine. I have had very few cases, maybe just a couple, where that has actually occurred, uh, where the jurors basically submit questions to the judge and the judge reformulates the question, if you would, and, and then and then uh, has asked me about it. I think it's important because I think it shows what the jury really is thinking about, what they want to know. I think it's a real signal to both sides as to what's going on in the case and what they need to focus on. There are often so many facets of a case that might be interesting, but are not really the key point for the trial. And I'm a great believer in trying to sift through that rapidly so that litigation is expensive. If we can expedite the process by presenting the jury or the judge with really the only limited questions that are left, it's a much better process. So what you talked about jurors submitting questions is one way to do it, uh, I've actually had a number of cases, both criminal and civil where, and this is unique, but where the parties have agreed that the experts could talk together prior to litigation or prior to the case and decide where they agreed and where they disagreed. Advise the lawyers and then create stipulations For everything that was already out of you know not not a question not on the table, and that the only thing that would then be presented in court would be where the experts disagreed specifically. Uh, Very effective way to shorten a trial and to get to really the root of the issue, the pithiness of it. A lot of lawyers don't want to do that. It's not necessarily conducive to their work or billing or anything else, but if your goal is really to get to truth,
0: it can be very helpful. So in a previous conversation that we had, you mentioned that forensic psychiatrists may know a lot about legal strategy. Why don't you expand on that a little more? In our training,
1: we learn about legal strategy. As experts in behavior, we understand about strategy and how people are going to behave, both lawyers, jurors, judges, etc but for certain matters or topics, we may actually have more experience or see more of those cases or be in court more on those issues than a lawyer. So even in something in the criminal world, most criminal lawyers might do one insanity defense case, criminal responsibility case in their career. They're rare, whereas a forensic psychiatrist might have done dozens of them. So we may have a lot more experience about what really happens or how it goes down. Uh, Or one of my areas of expertise, uh, I have a national reputation in in infanticide and neonaticide, death of newborn and, and young children. It's a gruesome area, but again, most criminal lawyers might see one or two of those cases in their career. I've seen a lot of them. So I know what we need to present, how it needs to come across, what are the words and the language that are, are important for that topic. So uh, again, as part of that prep with lawyers, there's really an opportunity to, uh, for a lawyer to learn a lot um, from an expert. In fact, just before this call, I was helping prep a lawyer for a case uh, and it had to do with a discharge uh, from a hospital. And I said, well, have you looked at the accreditation, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospital Organizations? Have you looked at their discharge standards? The lawyer said, well, no, they hadn't. They didn't know about those. I said, well, there are standards that are out there that, physicians need to know. And in this case, one expert on the other side has said the discharge was inappropriate or premature. I said, but I can tell you that discharge met the published hospital standards. And so if we can go in there with the standards, you know, you print them out, you blow them up on the poster board size, all the way that you know, that kind of material is presented in a courtroom, we have a much stronger case because we can show that the doctor, the hospital followed the standards and that's going to carry this case. But in this case, the lawyer wasn't aware of the standard I was, because in my work, I've seen standards for lots of things, lots of times. and I'm able to bring that into the picture.
0: hmm. Why don't we dive a little deeper into your expertise? You know, these days we hear a lot about depression, anxiety, um, ADHD. You know, we typically hear about that with kids and also the the same sorts of conditions with adults, uh, maybe burnout. Are these some of the most common disorders in your field that that you're seeing and then also in the courtroom? So...
1: Clinically, those are certainly some of the most common things that we treat, and the bulk of my work is actually clinical, which I think is important for a variety of reasons. One is some states mandate that an expert, in order to be admitted, has to do a certain percentage of their work clinically, so they can't be simply an expert witness. They look too much like a hired gun. Uh, I live in Delaware Uh, I do some testimony in Maryland, our adjoining state. Uh, They have a 20% rule. So I've got to keep my clinical practice uh, 80% of my work. Uh, Otherwise, I'm not allowed to testify in Maryland, as an example. But also good clinical work is the basis of being a good forensic psychiatrist. It keeps you abreast of the literature, the clinical world. When you talk about things like the standard of care, you're much more Uh, understanding and appreciative of it because you're living it and doing it every day. I don't have to look up or try to figure out what the standard of care is on most things because I'm out clinically working and interacting with colleagues on these topics every day. So I know uh, about that. Uh, Depression doesn't come up in cases all that frequently other than as a damage. So Uh, Someone may be alleging depression or anxiety or a stress syndrome, post-traumatic stress disorder, an adjustment disorder, uh, an acute stress reaction, as the result of something that they have experienced. It could be uh, a traumatic motor vehicle accident, an injury at work, uh, a psychic damage like harassment, harassment. would all fall into that arena. So I see those clinically. We certainly see them on the forensic side uh, as well. ADD comes up mostly in cases where someone is seeking a disability or uh, some kind of special accommodation. So through the disability law side, we may be trying to help someone get an accommodation. It could be a student who needs help with testing. It could be a a law student who wants untimed testing for the LSATs, Uh, we do those cases. Um, So ADD comes up mostly through that channel. Um, The med mal cases, generally it's the damage that someone has experienced. And in those, so we have two kinds of medical malpractice cases that uh, I would be involved in. One is where someone is alleging that a medical error, not a psychiatric error, but essentially a physical medical error caused them harm. And they now have depression, anxiety, a psychic injury secondary to the physical injury. So you know, classic case would be they had surgery, a sponge uh, or an instrument was left inside their body, they had to get reoperated on. And now they have a fear of doctors and a lack of trust and uh, pain related to the surgical mistake. That would be one form. The other one would be a medical malpractice error directly in psychiatry, where someone is claiming that the Uh, negligence of the psychiatrist caused harm. Most common of those, of course, is suicide, that essentially either an act of omission or commission by the psychiatrist resulted in the person committing suicide or possibly injuring someone else, homicide or an injury to another person, um, or a boundary violation issue, as we call them, meaning that a treater, Uh, was inappropriately uh, intimate with uh, a patient violating the the ethics codes and essentially the, the standards for boundaries
0: between doctors and patients. Okay, I'm gonna give you a softball question. It's about <laughs> social, social media, and I'm a parent uh, of, of two girls uh, oh, It's around us. There's no way you can get away from social media. So let's compare, and, and I love the fact that I get to talk to a qualified person about this. I'm, I'm very interested in this topic. Um, let's say, compared to a decade ago, or maybe even 15 years ago, have you seen an uptick in mental illnesses or disorders brought on by or triggered by the use of social media. And um, I know some kids, I won't name names, uh, use social media sometimes for hours on end. So I, I guess the question is that. And then maybe, you know, what sort of disputes have you seen arise uh, in cases related to um, social media? So social media is.
1: Uh, a disaster area, to put it simply. <laughs> uh, the, the pressure on teenagers today, especially girls, uh, but both sexes, uh, is just immense and social media only magnifies it and worsens it. The bullying online, the sharing and inappropriate sharing uh, and lack of privacy online is really troubling Uh, We saw this coming, actually, Justice Brandeis back in the mid-1800s saw this coming when uh, he was talking about problems with newspapers and telecommunications developing in the late 1800s. Clearly, he was prescient. Uh, The problems that it produces are myriad. We have had some very interesting cases around social media. Probably the most notorious one is the... uh, Uh, Homicide charges against uh, a uh, individual for encouraging another person to take their own life. Uh, So bullying to the point of someone committing suicide, uh, that's a huge problem. Uh, Obviously, the school shooting, and we just had the Buffalo uh, shooting being live streamed for shock effect. And this is just stuff that's just, just awful. Uh, and the pressure to conform, uh, to look a certain way, to be a certain thing has increased rates of anorexia, depression, uh, and, and self-esteem problems that are really just out of control. So I think there's a lot of problems. I understand it can improve communications and, and that there can be benefits to it like any other technology, but it is fraught with problems. The place I see and and use social media the most, so I'm not not a social media user per se, um, but it comes up in many legal cases. The two that are the most common for me would be disability cases where people are alleging to their doctors and treaters that an injury has caused a disability and they can't do these various things that they used to do where on social media you see them doing all the things they said that they can't do and uh, basically, you know, destroying their own case. The other one would be in divorce custody battles, same sorts of things people say and do all sorts of things on social media that become admissible uh, in the court in divorce and custody litigation. Most of the lawyers I know do civil uh, work uh, in the plaintiff arena, instruct their clients uh, and some of them now in writing that they must promise to uh, cease all social media uh, use so that it cannot be found. Of course, once it's been on the internet once, it's there forever. You cannot take things off the internet. There is no erasure out there. So true, false, uh, or otherwise, it's out there. So Mm
0: -hmm. it's a big issue. Yeah, it's interesting. One to two decades ago, uh, in these sorts of cases, uh, a firm would have to hire a private investigator. Now, you just look up the person on Facebook or wherever, and you find this information that they're freely posting about themselves. It's a very interesting time we're living in. Thank you to Dr. Neil Kay for speaking with us today and a special thanks to our listeners. At IMS we're trusted to deliver consulting services to the most influential global law firms early with pre-suit and investigation services, then in litigation during discovery, arbitration, and trial. It's been our privilege to serve our clients on more than 20,000 cases and over 2000 trials. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and join us next time on the IMS Insights Podcast.